Hi, I'm Elise Kennedy. Welcome to Jardin's Startup Tech Series, where we host entrepreneurs, venture funds, and technology companies on trends across the industry. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by logistics tech platform trade window chief operating officer, Andrew Bogani. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Andrew. Thanks, Elise. Great to be here. So I've covered WiseTech, also a logistics software player. From its IPO at $3.35, it's now over $50. So we get excited when we hear another early stage company operating in the space. So I'm going to start by turning it over to you to give a little bit about where Trade Window sits within the space. Great. Thanks, Elise. Yeah, Trade Window, we're a software business. We're focused on providing digital trade solutions for a fairly broad range of companies, so exporters, importers, freight forwarders, and customs brokers. And there's three big things that we deliver to these customers. So we help them with productivity, so driving productivity within their their back-end operations. Then we also help them with increasing connectivity, and that's up with their supply chain partners, so connecting them in with the likes of the ports, the ocean carriers, banks, insurance companies, and the border agencies. And then the third part is we have a solution that helps with enhancing visibility. And this is about when goods are moving through the supply chain. So yeah, we've got a a fairly broad range. I think where we'd compete directly with WiseTech would be in that productivity suite. And that's for a specific set of our customers being the freight forwarders. I understand WiseTech is more focused on the bigger players in the freight forwarding market, so the global freight forwarders, where we found our our niche in the mid-market, particularly in, in Australasia. But what we also do is we serve the exporters themselves. So a lot of these businesses tend to be larger players. So our core focus there also being mid-market, but we go up into our large enterprise as well. Fantastic. And perhaps you can talk through some of your revenue and pricing model? Is it a monthly SaaS subscription? Is it an all-you-can-eat model and then you pay afterwards? Any other detail on that would be great. Yeah, we've got a bit of a, a hybrid there. So we've got the hybrid being between monthly subscription or customers can pay annually if they want to, plus transactional revenues. And the reason why we've done that, our customers tend to be, particularly in the exporter space, very seasonal. And so it allows them to match their costs with their revenues and those seasonal cycles. The good thing is that we've got customers across a broad range of industries. So meat, seafood, horticulture, dairy, manufacturing means that our revenues balance out overall. And have you seen any changes more recently on those types of revenue? Because you mentioned it is transactional. Have you seen an acceleration with COVID or more challenges? You know, we hear all about the supply chain challenges. Uh, If anything, our revenue has been going up as we've been winning more customers. So certainly we've seen growth in demand. And yeah, COVID has really helped with that. It's provided tailwinds for the business. And I think the key thing around, you know, why are... freight forwarders, exporters, importers looking to digitize their operations. It's about business resilience. So a lot of these businesses have historically been relying on manual paper-based processes. By digitizing their processes, they bring a a whole lot more, I guess, strength and robustness to, to how they run their operations, making sure that 
you know, the processes are repeatable, but also uh, securing their data as well is another key thing that we've seen with the rise in, uh, in cybercrime. Yeah, that is a topical space in the moment. And your geographic footprint, do you have any strengths in ANZ or is it truly global? Any other details around that? Yeah, we're more of a Oceania up into Asia focused player. So we've got staff at the moment across Australia, New Zealand, Singapore and Indonesia. And then we've got customers in all of those countries, plus China, Fiji, Malaysia and Papua New Guinea. Do you think you'll expand beyond that or that's really kind of the bread and butter of the business, at least at this stage in the cycle? We're already making early explorations around entering into the South American market, looking at establishing a a beachhead in Chile. And similar to what we're doing in Asia, it would be setting up an agency network. So taking a capital light approach to expanding into these markets. And how do you reach these customers? What's that go-to-market strategy? So in New Zealand and Australia, it's mainly uh, direct sales. So we've got a handful of highly skilled business development managers. And so they're focused on these mid-market to large size enterprises. And so, um, yeah, what we look at doing in terms of starting the customers on their digital transformation journey is we usually start by selling them a productivity solution. So for a large exporter, that's about providing them a solution for automating how they produce their shipping documents. For the freight forwarder, it's an ERP system for running their operation uh, end-to-end. And then once we've got them on as a customer and they want to progress on their digital transformation, we can offer them additional value by connectivity. And this is where we've got a new platform called Cube. So Cube is our blockchain-based platform that enables the exporter or the importer to securely share data out with their supply chain partners. And so that's where our customer success team will identify opportunities to um, take customers further on the journey. How long does it take to onboard those customers or to have the negotiations as to when you have that first direct sales model to when they have it in their system and agree to it? Yeah, so it can vary depending a lot on the size and complexity of the customer's operation. So for enterprise, we've experienced it could take anything from two months to 12 months. And it it really does depend. A lot of the, um, I guess, the driver around that time is the ERP system. And it's typically in the large exporters, it's the likes of SAP, Microsoft Dynamics, Oracle, and so on. And they all have their different degree of complexity. So that's with the initial productivity solution. But in terms of cross-selling our cube solution to them that connects them up with the supply chain, that's pretty quick. That's a cloud-based solution. So switch it on, provide them the training, connect it up with their supply chain, and they're away running pretty quickly. One of the pros of being in the cloud, you can keep on adding those things and seeing that LTV go up. (laughs) I want to touch on the industry because you have mentioned already about, you know, the disruption that you're going through because these guys haven't got systems in place. Do you have any information about how you size your market, the growth that you're seeing in there and some of the drivers of that growth? Yeah, for sure. In terms of the size of the market, it's one that we estimate as being enormous. So we've classified our market as trade tech. 
and recognize it's a nascent market. We play within the digital trade segment of that market. And so this is a term that's been used by the World Economic Forum and also the World Trade Organization. So we estimate worldwide that digital trade solution market to be worth US 2.8 trillion. And that's of white space opportunity. And so our immediate focus, which is Australasia, uh, we estimate represents 12.1 billion of white space opportunity there. And that's facilitating trade. Then moving up into Asia, we've already established that beachhead in Singapore and we're building out our agency network. We're moving into a market that we estimate to be worth $297 billion. Wow. It's a huge market opportunity. It's essentially you, you look at how much trade is being moved through that region. So we're looking at trade volume that's both sea, so 20-foot equivalent container units, plus air cargo, which is measured in, in kilograms. And we're basically looking at the trade costs associated with each of those consignment movements. So the guys that are bringing this software in, what are they using right now if they're using anything instead? And when they implement it, what's the reason that they're bringing it in? Is it because they're getting more efficiency from it, more transparency, more speed to market? Yeah, in terms of where they're at on their digital journey, it varies a lot. So we've got some customers that are still on Excel spreadsheets. And so there's a huge productivity gain for them. It reduced the costs associated with their back office processing. So they can cut down the amount of uh, FTEs they apply to their operations and redeploy that capital into more efficient parts of their business, such as as sales and marketing, product development. Then the other part around the value that we provide is around the connectivity piece. And so there's a huge amount of efficiency there in terms of saving time and how an exporter or freight forwarder interacts with their supply chain partners. But then the other piece is security. So it's data security. So it's protecting the business from loss. Uh, So it could be we've got exporters at the moment who are sharing out information via email out to their partners. So it's, it's unsecure. Emails can easily be intercepted. And so that can either lead to the data being ransomed or something as silly as email intercepted with a commercial invoice in it, payment details are changed and their customer pays the wrong account. So we've seen incidences of that happening. Yeah, Andrew, that's a really interesting point and could be a good driver of adoption that uh, perhaps we haven't fully thought about. I also want to touch into, you mentioned the role of blockchain, which we're hearing an increasing amount across all industries. Are you able to elaborate around what you're doing with that in the space? Sure. Yeah. So uh, blockchain is part of our technology stack within our cube platform. So the one I mentioned that enables the sharing of information. The key thing that it does is it provides an immutable audit trail. So a recipient of that information or data can trust that it's come from the correct party. It's come from source. There's that full audit trail there that traces Uh, the data back to either the exporter or the freight forwarder because that's the big thing that is adding a lot of cost to supply chain at the moment is the verification of data 
the need for third-party intermediaries, and this cuts out that cost and so creates a huge amount of efficiency there. So the uh, blockchain protocol that we use, it's an enterprise-grade one. It's called Hyperledger Fabric. This has been developed by a community that involves most of the big tech players out there in the world, the likes of Oracle and, and so on. Fantastic. And let's move on to the competitive landscape. Who do you see as your main competitors? Yeah, if we, if we break the market down into those three parts that I mentioned before, so productivity, connectivity, and visibility. So in the um, productivity part, we're competing against in the exporter space. So this is export documentation solutions, a few Australasian point solutions. So these are small businesses they are just focused on solving the automation of creation of export documents within an exporter's back office operations. Uh, These tend to be smaller businesses, none of them are public. Then on the freight forwarder side, we're competing against some big players. I mentioned before, we've got WiseTech, ASX listed business, uh, then BlueJay. BlueJay has recently been acquired by ETA Open, the New York Stock Exchange listed I think it was a SPAC. So reasonably big player in that space. Then if we move out to connectivity, it starts becoming pretty fragmented because you need to break supply chain down into four main parts. So you've got commercial solutions, you've got financial solutions, you've got logistics solutions and government. And so there's platforms in each of these spaces What they're doing is they're serving a niche purpose. So in the financial world, they're serving the need to the bank. However, what we're doing is we're serving the needs of the exporter or the freight forwarder who's wanting to share out their information with all of these parties across the supply chain. So these other platforms are essentially both indirect competitors and collaborators. And so our view is we're actually trying to connect up with them because it starts creating the network effect and that our customers get additional value by being able to seamlessly share information with, say, the logistics company or their bank or with a government agency. So that's where we see partnership there with these other platforms. And then beyond that, we've got visibility. And so this is looking at solutions that provide that traceability of products as they move through the supply chain. And there's a couple of different use cases you can use that data for. So it can either be for risk management. So if there's a need for a product recall, you can quickly and efficiently do that. You can also use that traceability for managing whether there's counterfeit products out there in the market. Or otherwise, at a more basic level, it's for that data-driven storytelling So a consumer might want to know the provenance of the apple that they're eating and and understand the story behind it. So what we can do in that respect is reuse the data that's been captured in both our productivity solutions and connectivity solutions to provide that full end-to-end traceability. And so that's a key point of difference for us in that, you know, we say we're the only vertically integrated player out there that has these layered solutions of productivity, connectivity, and visibility. 
And do you find when you are doing those value proposition pitches to your potential customers, do you go in on one of those, say productivity or connectivity, or do you try to sell the whole suite? How does that life cycle evolve? It really depends about where they are on in terms of digital maturity. So if you've got a business that's running their back-end operations on Excel spreadsheets, we're not going to go in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it's take them on the journey is pretty Mm. much what we're doing. And so the journey being that progression from productivity through to visibility. And so we see that you really got to sort out your own back-end operations first before progressing on and being able to share out data with your supply chain. If your supply chain partners are going to trust in the data that you're providing them, they want to see that it's come out of robust systems that have been used in your back office. Yeah, makes sense. And then I feel like we're pretty early stage if, you know, the bulk of the people that you're attracting are still using Excel, but there's an increasing number of players coming into this space. Do you think if you look out, you know, five years, do you think we're going to see industry consolidation or is there different, you know, needs for each and every one, as you mentioned, in the partnership model? How do you see the landscape evolving longer term? Yeah, it's an interesting one. There's plenty of room for growth. I see interoperability is a key thing and like what we're mm-hmm. doing at the moment, driving that network effect. So having a solution that connects up with incumbent players. So we're not looking to displace, say, the ERP systems that mm. have been used by the large exporters, nor are we looking to, you know, displace SWIFT, which is, you know, the financial messaging solution that's used by the banks. Rather, we're working out how we can connect with them. And so that's where it becomes much bigger than just a technology problem. It's not about providing a single software solution that serves all players within a supply chain. It's about connecting them up and connecting up the solutions that they use. So technology is one part of the solution. The other part's about data standardization. And so yes. there's a lot of work going on there with industry bodies looking to standardize data so that, say, an exporter can seamlessly share data across to their logistics partner. And the third part is about government regulation and legislation. And so having government enabling the recognition of documents that are shared through digital means. And so this is where there's been a lot of work going on here. The UN has uh, got a series of laws called UN model laws. And so these laws will help for the facilitation of digital trade. And so the leading light in this area has actually been Singapore. They've recently ratified Uh, these laws and given that they're the main transshipment hub in this part of the world i would see that other countries such as new zealand or australia will follow uh, suit pretty soon i've seen that some of the new free trade agreements that have been put in place so the auk au eu free trade agreements start calling for digital trade facilitation particularly around border clearance processes And when you saw that, Andrew, say in Singapore, did you see a material uplift when you started to see or you see some of those regulations come through? It's a journey. So it's not going to lead to major change overnight, but certainly it helps provide, I guess, the foundations for future growth. Yeah. And how easy is it 
for us to replicate your business? Is there years of R&D or is there some barriers to entry from being a first mover? Do the customers you have not churn? Give us a bit more detail about that. Yeah, so it's it's pretty difficult, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, starting with the customers, very, very sticky customers. The way that we've gone about acquiring a, a large number of our customers is through acquisition. So recognising that we're playing in the enterprise space and that sales cycles are relatively long, we identified that a really cost-effective and low-risk way of growing is acquiring incumbent businesses and being able to continue to serve those customers with great solutions, but provide them with future functionality and take them on the journey. Uh, The other part that we've done is we've started building a pretty substantial ecosystem around us. And so what I was talking about before with these other connectivity platforms, we've got interoperability agreements in place across each of those segments I mentioned, so commercial, logistics, financial and government. And so that's a critical piece of our value proposition and it takes a long time to get in place. So especially when you're dealing with government, they want to know that they're dealing with a business that can be trusted, that we're around for the long term, that we've got the right intentions. And so that's been a key driver for us moving towards a public listing. So we're listing on the NZX the provisional date is uh, the 22nd of November, so it's it's pretty soon. That's subject to clearance by the, the regulator. But the reason we've done that is being publicly listed means that we operate in a transparent way. We have best practice corporate governance in place. And so when we're building out our ecosystem, which is typically with large enterprise and government, they can know that we're going to be around for the long term, they can trust in us and that we've got the the right uh, controls in place. And then thinking about some of the unit economics, I assume you're still in investment phase. Looking forward, how do we think about that profile? Is there a lot more to go to capture the market that's still ripe for disruption or is it a matter of you've got those customers now, you can perhaps pull back? How do we think about that profile? No, we're still very much in the mode. So, yeah, we see that this is just the start of a long journey. And so heaps of opportunity out there. And if anything, it's about moving quickly. And that's another element of Mm. why we're moving to a public listing is the fact that if we need capital to grow and grow quickly, the public market is an efficient way of being able to access that market. And strategies for growth, there's always a million things to do, especially when you've got such a long runway. How should we think about the growth profile? Could there be more modules outside of that? I'm calling the modules or whatever it is that you call productivity, connectivity and so on. Or is it about more countries and geographies or more customers themselves? What do you think about that profile? Yeah, I think you've got it there. So in terms of you know our, our growth strategy, if we break it down into three parts, Mm -hmm. So the first one, it's about increasing our average revenue per customer. And so that's providing additional value to them, taking them further on that digital transformation journey. So your new modules that either connect them up with other parts of the supply chain or provide additional services that come about through reusing the data that's being captured. Then we've got 
penetrating new markets. And so that's either new geographies or new segments of either the export market or import market. So, for example, we're heavily involved in the primary industry sector, as I mentioned before, but big opportunities for us could be nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals, uh, so on, FMCG. Then in terms of product leadership is a third part of our strategy, and so it's about that customer-centric product development. So we work closely with our customers, listening to feedback, listening to what features and functionality they want. So it's it's ongoing. So that's a big part of our, our growth strategy and that our customers become our biggest advocates. And we'll look to accelerate any one of these initiatives through acquisition where it makes economic sense. Fantastic. And my last question on M&A was from the topic. You mentioned earlier Blue Jay, you know, moving towards being acquired in a SPAC form. You've also done a number of acquisitions yourself and just mentioned then it might continue. How do you see the future outlook on M&A in this space? Yeah, I think where it makes economic sense and where there's alignment between the vendor and us, yeah, most certainly it can be an extremely efficient low-risk way to enter new markets, acquire new customers. It also helps with one of our biggest challenges, which is the the war for talent. So the businesses that we've acquired so far, so we've acquired five businesses, each of them has bought a huge amount of talent over. So their industry knowledge, it's fantastic. And so we've got some really engaged people on our team, particularly you know the vendors. We've got great alignment there. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again, Chief Operating Officer Andrew Bolgani from Trade Window. I am excited to watch this space when uh, you list in a couple of weeks. Great. Thank you, Elise. It's been a pleasure.